There comes a moment in each dating relationship that sets his mark as a turning point, right? So if you're married in here, um, you can start to think back to your own relationship. But, but I don't know if you remember that moment for you where the relationship moved from casual to more serious. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it was a day or a date. Maybe it was a season. But when I was a college minister, I found out that the kiddos, the young people, had a name for this, okay? It was called having a DTR, right? A define the relationship talk. So for those of us who are married in the room, you all have that story, right? The story of when your relationship began to move from casual to serious, when you would call each other boyfriend and girlfriend, right? When I was in college, Facebook had just come out, so like the moment of glory was whenever you changed your relationship status to say, Colton White is in the relationship with so-and-so, and everybody knew, right? And so that's when you knew something was serious between two people. But most dating relationships have a similar trajectory. All of the stories are different, little details, but they all have a similar trajectory, right? You and your friends, maybe you're, you're young, you're, you're energetic, and you're all hanging out, and then you notice someone, right? And you're like, oh, they're kind of cute. Right? And what eventually happens is you begin to talk to that person more than you're talking to everybody else. You start to laugh at their jokes. You start to learn little things about them. And then you just keep, as the days go on, you keep finding reasons to hang out with them, right? I know um, I had a buddy of mine that took up bird watching because he met a girl that liked birds. And so he thought, I'm going to be an avid bird watcher, right? And so you just start making up ways for you to hang out with someone, and then you start going to coffee, right? Going to coffee. Um, and you start spending time with them one-on-one. -on -one. This is known as the talking stage for the young people. I don't know if you're older. I don't know what it was like. I've heard letters, writing letters was a big thing. Um, but <laughs> I, I don't know how it worked back then. Uh, but I'm sure it's similar to what happens today, is that there's this slow movement towards serious dating, right? I can hear some people laughing really hard at me, and I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, but, so, um, but there comes a point, right, when things start to get, there's this little season of confusion where you begin to wonder, what is happening here? Like, what are we to each other? What am I to this person? I remember for Katie and I, um, that conversation happened on November 5th, 2010, I say I remember, I had to ask her about this um, <laughs> so that I could be clear on how this conversation went down because from what I remember about it, I, I, I'm not the good guy in the story, okay? Um, but I, I had to ask her about this and what she, I've gathered in Intel is that I um, drove to College Station. She was going to Texas A&M at the time. I was at UMHB. I drove to College Station. I hear some whoops. Um, I drove to College Station, and I, we went to coffee at Mudwalls or something like that, and we, I was taking her home. And I can't believe I said this, um, but I said, just out of nowhere, on the way home, so I've been telling my friends that you're my girlfriend. Just said that. And she's like, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, like when my friends ask me, you know, are we official, what's going on here? I just, I just tell them we're dating. I just tell them you're my girlfriend. And then I said, so when your friends ask you about us, what do you tell them? So young people, learn from my mistakes. That is not how you handle that conversation. But in that moment, she's in a weird spot, right? She has two options, okay? 
And her answer to that question is going to determine the trajectory of our relationship. Because if she turns to me and says, well, I just tell him you're a really good friend, right? That's bad. Yeah. Obviously, she didn't say that because we've been married for seven years. But if she would have said that, it would have changed our relationship. Now, why do I tell you that? So, funny enough, this is where we are in our text today. We are in this crucial moment in the Gospel of Mark where he is going to have a divine DTR with his disciples. Okay? The book of Mark has 16 chapters. And this chapter, chapter 8, is the turning point of the entire book. The first eight chapters of this book, it's all about his identity. Who is this man? They're trying to identify who he is. You see questions like, who talks like that? Or who has that kind of authority over demons? Or who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey? They're, they're trying to figure out his identity. And all in the while, he's gathering 12 men around him, and he's slowly revealing who he is to them. So they're beginning to learn about him. And in this moment, we get some clarity, right? This is the moment that changes their relationship. It's the pivot point of the whole book because the rest of the book isn't about who he is, but it's rather, rather it's about what is his mission? What did he come to do? And in this specific text in chapter 8, we get the answer to both questions. Who is he and what is his purpose? Who is he and what is his purpose? So verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So when you're out on the town, when you're at the grocery store, what's the word on the street about me? And they tell him in verse 28, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, if you look at those, what do those have in common? They are all great men who speak for God. And more than that, the disciples say that the crowds think that you're not only a prophet, but you are one of the premier prophets, maybe the most premier prophets of all the prophets. And this belief that Jesus was simply a great man is still the popular thinking today. It still is. You think about it, the majority of non-believers, people who don't call themselves Christians, the majority of them are, they're not anti-Jesus, right? They might be anti-Christians, but they're not typically anti-Jesus. They like Jesus. They like what he stands for. They think he's a really great guy. And even other religions, they're not necessarily anti-Jesus. Todd Aaron, who's an author, he wrote a book called Abrahamic Revolution, um, which is an incredible book, by the way. But Todd tells this story. He was a missionary in the Middle East, and he tells this story of a conversation he had at a dinner party with a Muslim college student, okay? And he says, this, this Muslim college student finds out he's from America, and he goes, oh, I just wrote a paper called Who is Jesus? And so the missionary is like, oh, okay, cool. So what did you think, right? Who is Jesus? And this was the Muslim college student's answer. He said, Jesus is one of the most unique people who has ever been born, lived, and died. And Todd says he was shocked by this, right? This is not what he's heard about how Muslims think about Jesus. And he's thinking, man, did this guy stumble into the New Testament? Has he been reading scripture? What an opportunity for me. So he says, where did you get that information? Where did you get that idea? And he says, oh, I found it all in the Quran, the holy book of Islam. So, so in the holy book, the Quran, Jesus is portrayed as a great prophet and teacher. And even in Hinduism, Jesus is seen in a similar way. He isn't this anti-hero who is opposing 
all of their gods, but rather he is grouped in with their gods as on the same level with like a Krishna, one of their premier gods. And so much of the world thinks of Jesus as a great teacher. But Jesus asked the first question just to get to the second question. Verse 29, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. This is the moment. This is the moment that will set the trajectory of their relationship going forward. And Peter speaks up and says, I believe that you are the Christ. And the implications of that are unending. Peter is saying, we don't believe that you are a prophet or a great teacher. You are the one that has been sent from God to save us all. That's what Peter is saying. Because for Peter and the rest of the disciples, stories for generations have been spoken to them about a Messiah that's coming. They've been waiting for years and years and years. And he says, I believe that you're that guy. I believe you're the guy that Israel has been waiting for for forever. I believe you are the Christ. And what's ironic about this moment and what I love about this text is that they are in Caesarea Philippi, a city named after Caesar who commanded that everyone call him Lord. And in this moment, Peter says, no, Caesar's not Lord. You are Lord. Love that. But it's interesting, Jesus' first response to Peter is, hey, Tell no one. 30, verse 30 says, he strictly charges them to tell no one about him, which seems counterproductive, right? (laughs) Why tell no one? He's the Christ. In this moment, the disciples have the right word. He is the Christ. The problem is they don't understand what that means, and we're the same way. They only understand part of the story. This is actually illustrated right before in verse 22. I I don't know if you're the kind of person who reads before and after, but in verse 22... It should be on the screen. Here's what it says. It says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, this moment with the blind man is meant to be an analogy for the disciples. It's an analogy for how they currently understand Jesus. So he grabs the blind man, leads him out of the village, away from his home, and away from the familiar. Jesus leads the disciples away from Jerusalem. Caesarea Philippi is the furthest they will get away from Jewish life. They are away from anything that is familiar to them. And Jesus spits on this blind man's eyes, lays his hands on the blind man, and Jesus says, what do you see? And the guy's like, man, I I see trees. I see see trees. I think they're people. And there's just not any clarity there. So the blind man, the idea there is he's beginning to see, but he couldn't make out exactly what he's seeing. He's not seeing things clearly. Now, it's tempting to go, well, Jesus just messed up the first time. (laughs) He just failed and healing the guy. Jesus does not fail, right? Everything has a purpose. And the blind man, like us much of the time, and the disciples, only see part of the picture. Do you see it? It's blurry. It's like trees walking. And so he only sees part of the picture. And the disciples, and we're about to find out, have a blurry understanding of what it means to follow Christ 
in this world. And now, when Peter confesses that Jesus is Christ, Jesus is going to be revealing what that means, just like he does with the blind man. He's going to make the picture a little more clear. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I want you to notice that word began. This tells us that what he is about to tell them, he has never told them before. There's a principle at work here. With greater commitment comes greater intimacy. And this is true in our lives. You don't typically spill out all of your secrets to a stranger. You might. Most of us don't. But you usually do it with those who are committed to you, right? Like your spouse or a mother or a father or a family member or a best friend. If they're committed to you, then you will create with them great intimacy. They will know who you are. And Peter's confession utters in a new level of commitment in their relationship. So Jesus is going to respond by sharing with them in a more intimate way. And what Jesus says for the disciples is shocking. In fact, you get a, like an emphatic, violent rejection of it by Peter in a second. He says, the Son of Man must suffer. So why is Peter so mad? Well, it's centered on this phrase, Son of Man. That term, Son of Man, I don't know if that's ever confused you. It did for me for a long time. Um, but it can mean two things. One, it can mean that you are a son of a man, like son of a dude, okay? Uh, son of a human being. <laughs> so you are a son of a man. The prophets were called, sometimes called son of man because they were the son of a guy, okay? So you're like, son of man, he's a son of a dude, right? However, here in this moment, it means something different. If you notice, it's capitalized because it's not a description, okay? It's a title. When you see son of man capitalized, you are supposed to think of Daniel 7, Daniel 7, 13, where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's the father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel says, far off in the future, I see one that will come from heaven, and he will be like a son of man. And when this man comes to the ancient of days, the father, the father will give him all authority, everything. He will be king. His kingdom will not be defeated. He will be king over everything. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, it's meant to bring that kind of imagery to the disciples' mind. They would have known Daniel 7. They would have known that term. So when they hear son of man, they think clouds, the king, coming, authority, power. But he says the son of man, the king, the one who has all authority and power must what? Must suffer. So if you are an underliner or a circular, mark that word must. It's the most important word in this verse. The reality that the king must suffer does not make sense to the disciples. See, God had ordained that the Messiah must die, but never before this moment had anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah. It was prophesied in Daniel 7 
the Son of Man, and Isaiah together, the suffering servant, but no one had put it together. See, because the Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right in the world, how could he defeat evil and injustice by suffering and dying rather than being a conquering king? That seemed ridiculous. So by using the word must here, Jesus is saying that he is planning to die. It's not by accident. He's doing it voluntarily. It's one thing to say, I, I, I came to fight the good fight, and if I die, oh well. It's another thing to say, I came to die. I came here to die. It brings about this idea of necessity, that word must. In other words, Jesus says, it is necessary for me to suffer and die. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why must he die? Why must he suffer? Why must he be rejected? Why must he be killed? And why must he be risen from the grave? Why is this necessary? Well, one, it was written in the scriptures, and the scriptures cannot be broken. You ever thought about that? What has been written in God's word cannot be broken. And it is written in Psalm 22 that he must be mocked and insulted. It is written in Psalm 41 that he will suffer betrayal. It is written in Isaiah 50 that he will be struck on the face and spit on. The story that Jesus is about to walk in, walk through in the second half of the book of Mark has already been written. <laughs> it's already been told in the Old Testament. They know the story. In fact, Jesus in Mark 12, when he's at the temple right before they arrest him, he tells him in verse 10, have you not read the scripture? <laughs> he's like, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And listen to this when his soul makes an offering of guilt. God does not just predict what will happen. He's not like just predicting what's going to happen in this life. He makes happen what he has already announced in Scripture. Think about that. He makes happen what he has already announced in Scripture. I love Jeremiah 1.12. Um, he says, Then the Lord said to me, For I am watching over my word to perform it. Love that verse. I am watching over my word to perform it. He says, I'm, I'm looking over what I've said, and I'm going to perform what I've said. Love that. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Jesus died because it was written that he would die. Jesus is not telling the disciples what might happen, but rather he is telling them what has already been declared in the scriptures that is going to happen. That's the first reason. The second reason Jesus must suffer and die is because there is a debt that must be filled. There is a debt, and so there needs to be a payment. So, let me give you an analogy. Let's say you're very kind to me and you invite me over. You say, Colton, come over, I'll make you a steak. You know, big old, you know, feast. Just saying. Um, let's, let's say you invite me over and um, I graciously accept your invitation and I show up and I knock over your lamp and I break it. Not out of anger. It was an accident. Don't freak out, right? It was an accident. But let's say that lamp costs $100, okay? 
there are two options at that point. One, you could say, hey, Colton, it's no big deal, right? It was an accident, right? That's fine. You could say, um, you owe me $100, right? Pay up before you leave this house. It's okay if you do that, I'll pay you, right? But you have two options, right? Either you replace the lamp yourself. If you say it's okay, you say, okay, I will replace the lamp myself. Are you just live with less light? What happens? You absorb the cost of that debt yourself. But my breaking of the lamp has created a debt. There's something to be owed. The question is, who's going to pay off that debt? Me or you? So let's dial this up a little bit. When someone says something about you that hurts your reputation, maybe they steal an opportunity from you, or they, they genuinely hurt, or maybe they physically hurt you, a debt has been created at that point, right? Either you have taken something from someone or someone has taken something from you, and so option one is that you make them pay, right? Maybe you try to get even with them and try to hurt their reputation in return to kind of pay off that, that debt. You, you say, you have to pay for this. Or maybe you hurt them like they hurt you. So if you punch me, I'll punch back. I'll run away after I punch you, but I'll punch back, right? And so they made you suffer, and so now you want to make them suffer. You want to pay that debt back. What's option two? You absorb the debt that has been put against you. You absorb it, right? You forgive them. And there is nothing easy about forgiveness. When you want to get even, when you want to get even, when you want, when you want to have vengeful, hateful thoughts, but you refuse in order to forgive, that costs you, right? You know it. You know the pain. It hurts. You are forgiving them, and it is costing you. Why? Because you are absorbing the cost of that pain. That's what forgiveness is. So why did Jesus have to die? Because a debt has been made by us. We have wronged him. We have sinned against him. We are separated for him. We are condemned by him. We broke the lamp. So when Jesus says, I must suffer and die, he is saying the only way that I can forgive your sins is to die. To absorb that cost in my forgiveness. That's what's happening on the cross. He says, I will absorb your sin and shame on the cross. This is necessary. This must happen. Justice demands that this debt be paid. Hebrews 9.22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You are free from the debt because Jesus has shed his blood. You are free because he has absorbed the cost of what you and I have done. And yet, all this is new to the disciples. It's all new. And that's why it's in verse 32, it says, he said this plainly. Like before this, Jesus spoke in parables or cryptic language, like the bridegroom must be cut off or the bread must be broken, and no one knows what that means, right? But here he says, I'm gonna die and not stay dead. He speaks to them clearly, and Peter rejects this. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here is what Peter is saying in this moment. Here's what Jesus is saying to Peter in this moment. Any plan of God without my suffering 
is satanic. Think about it. Satan's already tried to play this card on Jesus. Jesus has heard this before. In Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, he says, The devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if ye fall down and worship me. And what did Jesus say? Be gone, Satan. Jesus has heard this before. Hey, don't suffer and die. That's what Satan told him. And that's what Peter is saying here. And he says, Peter, that's a satanic idea. That is against the plan of God. Without the suffering and death of me, On the cross, the humanity of the world has nothing. They have no hope. His obedience to the cross brings us freedom. So why aren't we all just the most perfect Christians you have ever seen? Why would we reject that? Well, it's not easy. Embracing the cross of Christ and following Jesus is not easy, and you know this. There is cost. There is sacrifice. Verse 34, he says, Calling to the crowd, the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So first, let me clarify something that is often misunderstood about these verses. Um, These four verses are not a requirement for being a Christian. Okay, They're not a requirement for being a Christian, but rather they reveal the heart of a Christian. In other words, these scriptures are not saying you must do something in order to be saved. They show the heart of the saved person that has been brought from death to life. So the heart of the saved person is to display two things, a denying of yourself and a taking up of your cross, okay? And every believer, there is two things. Every person who would call themselves a Christian, there is a denied self and there is a new self. A denied self and a nude self. And Jesus is saying here, that denied self must take up their cross. The denied self, or sorry, the new self must take up their cross. And the denied self must be crucified. This means that that part of you that wants to enjoy things other than Christ, the part of you that wants to worship other things, the part of you that wants to reject God or to be apathetic about the things of God must be put to death. The new self looks at the old self and goes, no, you're dead. (laughs) You don't belong here. That's what's happening in these verses. The new self looks at the world and what you used to enjoy and says, no, I will deny you and I will take up my cross and I will follow Christ. And then he says in 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the description of the selves. That one self aims to save its life in this world. World that, that self loves this world. That old self loves this world and wants to enjoy this world above Christ. It enjoys its comforts, its riches, its own selfish ambitions. That's the self that must be crucified and killed. The other self that would lose his life in order to save it, that self experiences Jesus and his gospel as more valuable, more satisfying than anything this world can give. In a phrase, to lose my life for the sake of Jesus is to say and to believe Jesus is better. He is better than anything else, anything else in the world. 
this phrase has held, it's, it's hold, held a lot of weight in my life. Um, there was a five-year period for me that was really hard that in the span of five years, um, my best friend was paralyzed in a motorcycle accident. My grandma, um, who I loved dearly, um, she had Alzheimer's and dementia later on, and, and I was one of her primary caretakers. She passed away. Um, my dad left my mom for another woman right before I left for college. Uh, my junior year in college, my dad committed suicide, and then a month after Katie and I got married, uh, my mom passed away from a stroke. And, and so that was a lot to take as a young man. And I remember that as a 22-year-old, looking back, no one would have blamed me if I would have looked at that old self and just say, have at it. Do whatever you want. And I don't think anyone in my life would have blamed me for that. That they would have said, it's okay, I understand. You go get trash. You go do whatever you want. I don't think many people would have blamed me. But there were people in my life that reminded me of this. Jesus is better. That in your day of sorrow, in your day of anxiety, in your your day of fear, he is better because he is. If you want to lose your life for his sake, you will save it because he is better than this world. Whatever the cost is for you for following Jesus, whether that's opportunities or friendships or status or money, whatever it is, man, he is worth it. And for those of us who are married in this room, this really shouldn't be that hard of a concept to grab. It really shouldn't. Um, I remember the guy who did Katie and I's marriage, uh, premarital counseling. He told me, you know, you're about to die, right? I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, you're about to die. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? He said, every wedding is a funeral. <laughs> he said, the single part of you that does whatever you want and whenever you want it, it's about to die. And he began to walk me through all the ways in which my life was about to change. So for you guys who are not married yet, Um, I don't know what you think marriage is going to be like, but it's probably not going to go how you think it's going to go. Um, And a lot of us in the room know what I'm talking about. That moment when your buddies want to hang out, they call you up like, hey, man, I got the game on. I got got washer boards going. I mean, I'm ready to go. Come on over. And you're like, yeah, dude, I'm in. And then you realize, oh, I haven't talked to my wife yet. And you go and talk to her, and she's like, "Mm, that's not going to fly. And then you got to call your buddies back, and you're like, yeah, bro. Not going to happen tonight, right? We've all been there. And, and, and girls, I, I don't know uh, about, about you, but you know, you've, if you've got your wedding mapped out, you've got the binder ready to go, right? And all you need is that someone, right? And then I just want to remind you that you are marrying a dude, a smelly, hairy, burpy, farty guy, all right? And he's going to stink and he's going to be messy, Right? You're going to spend an hour making all the pillows on the bed perfect, and he's going to come in and in one swoop swipe them all over the floor. Right? And, and, and you're going to want to talk to him right? and, sit and, and engage with him. And guys, when you get home and she says, how was your day? A sweeping good doesn't cut it. Right? She wants details. She wants to know how you are doing. Right? How's your heart? And you're going to have to engage with her. And, and girls, guys, these guys... We don't have the tools a lot of the time to do it. And your marriage is going to be, and it's okay if you amen here, 
a, a time and time and time again of sacrifice, 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 right? Amen? Why would you want to do that? Why are we letting our young people get married? Right? We should just lock them up, right? Don't get married. It's not worth it. Why? Well, and I'm sure a lot of the married people in the room would, would echo me on this. For me, life with Katie is better. It's just better. She's better. I will deny my old single self every day if that means that I get to spend that life with her. The benefits outweigh the cost. And if you want to follow Christ, then yes, it will be hard. You will go against the culture in every single way. You will sacrifice time, money, and pride for the sake of the gospel. And you know what? It will be worth it. It will be worth it. Um, Lucius Septimus Severus, who is not a Harry Potter character, um, he was a wealthy Roman emperor from the second century. He said this when he died. He said, I have been everything and everything is nothing. A little urn will contain all that remains of one for whom the whole world was too little. If you chase the world and what the world says will save you, if you try to find satisfaction in money and things that comfort you in status and building your own little kingdom, you will lose your life. But if you see him as better and you chase him, you may lose some things, but you know what you gain? Him. You gain him. And for those of us that are Christians, it took me a while for me to wrap my mind around this. For those of us that are Christians in here, there are no victims among us. There are no victims among us. What do I mean by that? Well, it's interesting. In Mark 10, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he wants to be part of his crew, and Jesus says, okay, get rid of all your stuff, and he can't do it. He wants this world more than he wants Jesus. And Peter sees that, and he says this to Jesus. Jesus, In verse 28, he says, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. He's like, look, we've ditched it all. We got rid of everything. What about us? He sees himself as a victim. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, our brothers, our sister, our mother, our father, our children, our lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. There are no victims here. Life with nothing but Jesus is better than having everything without Jesus. And Jesus finishes with a stark warning for his disciples in Mark 8. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him too will the Son of Man, he takes that king language, king name, Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory with the Father, with the holy angels. He references the Son of Man again. The future day when he comes in the clouds on judgment. And he says, hey, if you're ashamed of me now, I will be ashamed of you. Then, basically, he's saying, if you can't say yes to the wedding ring, then you're not going on the honeymoon. If on your wedding day, the pastor says, hey, for better or for worse, and you say, whoa, I'm not that into you, right? If you deny me, if you're not willing to walk on the road of suffering with me, then on that day, I will deny you. It's pretty terrifying. So if Jesus is going to walk down the road of suffering, the question for us is, do you see him as worthy enough to follow? 
do you see him as worthy enough to follow?